Act Four of The Doctor's Dilemma. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Doctor's Dilemma by George Bernard Shaw. Act Four. The studio. The easel is pushed back to the wall. Cardinal Death, holding his scythe and hourglass like a sceptre and globe, sits on the throne. On the hat-stand hangs the hats of Sir Patrick and Bloomfield Bonington. Walpole, just come in, is hanging up his beside them. There is a knock. He opens the door and finds Ridgeon there. "'Hello, Ridgeon.' They come into the middle of the room together, taking off their gloves. "'What's the matter? Have you been sent for, too?' "'We've all been sent for. I've only just come. I haven't seen him yet. The charwoman says that old Patty Cullen has been here with Beebe for the last half-hour.' Sir Patrick, with bad news in his face, enters from the inner room. "'Well, what's up?' "'Go in and see. B.B. is in there with him.' Walpole goes. Ridgeon is about to follow him, but Sir Patrick stops him with a look. "'What has happened?' "'Do you remember Jean Marsh's arm?' "'Is that what's happened?' "'That's what's happened. His lung has gone like Jean's arm. How he never saw such a case.' He has got through three months' galloping consumption in three days. B.B. got in on the negative phase. Negative or positive, the lad's done for. He won't last out the afternoon. He'll go suddenly, or you've often seen it. So long as he goes before his wife finds him out, I don't care. I fully expected this. It's a little hard on a lad to be killed because his wife has too high an opinion of him. Fortunately, few of us are in any danger of that. Sir Rafe comes from the inner room and hastens between them, humanely concerned, but professionally elated and communicative. Ah, here you are, Riggan. Patty's told you, of course. Yes. It's an enormously interesting case. You know, Cully, by Jupiter, if I didn't know, as a matter of scientific fact, that I'd been stimulating the phagocytes, I should say I'd been stimulating the other things. What is the explanation of it, Sir Patrick? How do you account for it, Riggan? Have we overstimulated the phagocytes? Have they not only eaten up the bacilli, but attacked and destroyed the red corpuscles as well? A possibility, suggested by the patient's pallor. Nay, have they finally begun to prey on the lungs themselves, or on one another? I shall write a paper about this case. Walpole comes back, very serious, even shocked. He comes between Beebe and Ridgeon. Phew! Beebe, you've done it this time. What do you mean? Killed him. The worst case of neglected blood-poisoning I ever saw. It's too late now to do anything. He'd die under the anaesthetic. Killed? Really, Walpole? If your monomania were not well known, I should take such an expression very seriously. Come, come, when you've both killed as many people as I have in my time, you'll feel humble enough about it. Come and look at him, Cully. Ridgeon and Sir Patrick go into the inner room. I apologize, Beebe, but it's blood poisoning. My dear Walpole, everything is blood poisoning, but upon my soul I shall not use any of that stuff of Riggins again. What made me so sensitive about what you said just now is that, strictly between ourselves, Riggin cooked our young friend's goose. Jennifer, worried and distressed, but always gentle, comes between them from the inner room. She wears a nurse's apron. Sir Ralph, what am I to do? 
that man who insisted on seeing me, and sent in word that business was important to Lewis, is a newspaper man. A paragraph appeared in the paper this morning saying that Lewis is seriously ill, and this man wants to interview him about it. How can people be so brutally callous? Walpole, moving vengefully towards the door. You just leave me to deal with him. But Lewis insists on seeing him. He almost began to cry about it. And he says he can't bear his room any longer. He says he wants to—to to die in his studio. Sir Patrick says let him have his way. It can do no harm. What shall we do? Why, follow Sir Patrick's excellent advice, of course. As he says, it can do him no harm, and it will no doubt do him good, a great deal of good. He will be much the better for it. Will you bring the man up here, Mr. Walpole, and tell him that he may see Lewis, but that he mustn't exhaust him by talking? Sir Ralph, don't be angry with me, but Lewis will die if he stays here. I must take him to Cornwall. He will recover there. Cornwall, the very place for him, wonderful for the lungs. Stupid of me not to think of it before. You are his best physician after all, dear lady. An inspiration. Cornwall, of course. Yes, yes, yes. You are so kind, Sir Ralph. But don't give me much. I shall cry, and Lewis can't bear that. Then let us come back to him and help to carry him in. Cornwall, of course, of course, the very thing. They go together into the bedroom. Walpole returns with the newspaper man, a cheerful, affable young man, who is disabled for ordinary business pursuits by a congenital erroneousness which renders him incapable of describing accurately anything he sees, or understanding or reporting accurately anything he hears. As the only employment in which these defects do not matter is journalism, for a newspaper not having to act on its description and reports, but only to sell them to idly curious people, has nothing but honour to lose by inaccuracy and unveracity, he has perforce become a journalist, and has to keep up an air of high spirits through a daily struggle with his own illiteracy and the precariousness of his employment. He has a notebook, and occasionally attempts to make a note, but as he cannot write shorthand, and does not write with ease in any hand, he generally gives it up as a bad job before he succeeds in finishing a sentence. The newspaper man, looking round and making indecisive attempts at notes. This is the studio, I suppose? Yes. Where he has his models, eh? No doubt. Cubicle, you said it was? Yes, tubercle. Which way do you spell it? Is it C-U-B-I-C-A-L or C-L-E? Tubercle, man, not cubicle. T-U-B-E-R-C-L-E. -E. Oh, tubercle. Some disease, I suppose. I thought he had consumption. Are you one of the family, or the doctor? I am neither one nor the other. I am Mr. Cutler Walpole. Put that down. Then put down Sir Colenso Ridgeon. Pigeon? Ridgeon. Contemptuously snatching his book. Here. You'd better let me write the names down for you. You're sure to get them wrong. That comes of belonging to an illiterate profession, with no qualifications and no public register. He writes the particulars. Oh, I say, you have got your knife into us, haven't you? I wish I had. I'd make a better man of you. Now attend. Showing him the book. These are the names of the three doctors. This is the patient. This is the address. This is the name of the disease. 
He shuts the book with a snap which makes the journalist blink, and returns it to him. "'Mr. Dubedat will be brought in here presently. He wants to see you because he doesn't know how bad he is. We'll allow you to wait a few minutes to humour him. But if you talk to him, out you go. He may die at any moment.' "'Is he as bad as that? I say, I am in luck to-day. Would you mind letting me photograph you?' He produces a camera. "'Could you have a lancet or something in your hand?' "'Put it up. If you want my photograph, you can get it in Baker Street, in any of the series of celebrities.' "'But they'll want to be paid, if you wouldn't mind.' "'I would. Put it up, I tell you. Sit down there and be quiet.' The newspaper man quickly sits down on the piano-stool, as Dubedat, in an invalid's chair, is wheeled in by Mrs. Dubedat and Sir Rafe. They place the chair between the dais and the sofa, where the easel stood before. Lewis is not changed, as a robust man would be, and he is not scared. His eyes look larger, and he is so weak physically that he can hardly move, lying on his cushions with complete languor. But his mind is active. It is making the most of his condition, finding voluptuousness in languor and drama in death. They are all impressed, in spite of themselves, except Ridgeon, who is implacable. Beebe is entirely sympathetic and forgiving. Ridgeon follows the chair with a tray of milk and stimulants. Sir Patrick, who accompanies him, takes the tea-table from the corner and places it behind the chair for the tray. Beebe takes the easel-chair and places it for Jennifer at Dubedat's side, next the dais, from which the lay figure ogles the dying artist. Beebe then returns to Dubedat's left. Jennifer sits. Walpole sits down on the edge of the dais. Ridgeon stands near him. That's happiness to be in the studio happiness yes dear sir patrick says you may stay here as long as you like jennifer yes my darling is the newspaper man here yes mr dubedat i'm here at your service i represent the press i thought you might like to let us have a few words about about uh, well a few words on your illness and your plans for the season my plans for the season are very simple i'm going to die Lewis, dearest. My darling, I'm very weak and tired. Don't put on me the horrible strain of pretending that I don't know. I've been lying there listening to the doctors, laughing to myself. They know, dearest, don't cry. It makes you ugly, and I can't bear that. She dries her eyes and recovers herself with a proud effort. I want you to promise me something. Yes, yes, you know I will. Only, my love, my love, don't talk. It will waste your strength. No, it will only use it up. Ridgeon, give me something to keep me going for a few minutes. One of your confounded antitoxins, if you don't mind. I have something to say before I go. I suppose it can do no harm. He pours out some spirit, and is about to add soda water, when Sir Patrick corrects him. In milk, don't sit him coughing. Jennifer. Yes, dear. If there's one thing I hate more than another, it's a widow. Promise me you'll never be a widow. My dear, what do you mean? I want you to look beautiful. I want people to see in your eyes that you were married to me. The people in Italy used to point at Dante and say, There goes the man who has been in hell. I want them to point at you and say, There goes a woman who has been in heaven. It has been heaven, darling, hasn't it, sometimes? Oh, yes, yes. Always, always. If you wear black and cry, people will say, Look at that miserable woman. Her husband made her miserable. No, never. 
You are the light and the blessing of my life. I never lived until I knew you. Then you must always wear beautiful dresses and splendid magic jewels. Think of all the wonderful pictures I shall never paint. Well, you must be transfigured with all the beauty of those pictures. Men must get such dreams from seeing you as they never could get from any daubing with paint and brushes. Painters must paint you as they never painted any mortal woman before. There must be a great tradition of beauty, a great atmosphere of wonder and romance. That is what men must always think of when they think of me. That is the sort of immortality I want. You can make that for me, Jennifer. There are lots of things you don't understand, that every woman in the street understands. But you can understand that, and do it as nobody else can. Promise me that immortality. Promise me you will never make a little hell of crape and crying, and undertaker's horrors and withering flowers and all that vulgar rubbish. I promise. But all that is far off, dear. You are to come to Cornwall with me and get well. Sir Ralph says so. Poor old B.B. Poor fellow. Brain going. Sir Patrick's there, isn't he? Yes, yes. I'm here. Uh, sit down, won't you? It's a shame to keep you standing about. Yes, yes. Thank you. All right. Jennifer? Yes, dear. Do you remember the burning bush? Yes, yes. Oh, my dear. How it strains my heart to remember it now. Does it? It fills me with joy. Tell them about it. It was nothing. Only that once in my old Cornish home we lit the first fire of the winter, and when we looked through the window we saw the flames dancing in a bush in the garden. Such a colour, garnet colour, waving like silk, liquid lovely flame flowing up through the bay leaves, and not burning them. Well, I shall be a flame like that. I'm sorry to disappoint the poor little worms, but the last of me shall be the flame in the burning bush. Whenever you see the flame, Jennifer, that will be me. Promise me that I shall be burnt. Oh, if I might be with you, Lewis. No, you must always be in the garden when the bush flames. You are my hold on the world. You are my immortality. Promise. I'm listening. I shall not forget. You know that I promise. Well, that's about all, except that you are to hang my pictures at the one-man show. I can trust your eye. You won't let anyone else touch them. You can trust me. Then there's nothing more to worry about, is there? Give me some more of that milk. I'm fearfully tired. But if I stop talking, I shan't begin again. Sir Rafe gives him a drink. He takes it and looks up quaintly. I say, B.B., do you think anything would stop you talking? He confuses me with you, Patty. Poor fellow, poor fellow. I used to be awfully afraid of death. But now it's come, and I have no fear. And I'm perfectly happy, Jennifer. Yes, dear. I'll tell you a secret. I used to think that our marriage was all an affectation, and that I'd break loose and run away some day. But now that I'm going to be broken loose, whether I like it or not, I'm perfectly fond of you, and perfectly satisfied because I'm going to live as part of you, and not as my troublesome self. Stay with me, Louis. Oh, don't leave me, dearest. Not that I'm selfish, with all my faults. I don't think I've ever been really selfish. No artist can. Art is too large for that. You will marry again, Jennifer. 
Oh, how can you, Lewis? Yes, because people who have found marriage happy always marry again. Ah, I shan't be jealous. But don't talk to the other fellow too much about me. He won't like it. I shall be your lover all the time. But it will be a secret from him, poor devil. Come, you've talked enough. Try to rest a while. Yes, I'm fearfully tired, but I shall have a long rest presently. I have something to say to you fellows. You're all there, aren't you? I'm too weak to see anything but Jennifer's bosom. That promises rest. We are all here. That voice sounded devilish. Take care, Ridgeon. My ears hear things that other people's can't. I've been thinking, thinking. I'm cleverer than you imagine. You've got any nerves, Gully. Slip out quietly. Would you deprive the dying actor of his audience? I heard that, Ridgeon. That was good. Jennifer, dear, be kind to Ridgeon always, because he was the last man who amused me. Was I? But it's not true. It's you who are still on the stage. I'm halfway home already. What did you say? Nothing, dear. Only one of those little secrets that men keep among themselves. Well, all you chaps have thought pretty hard things of me, and said them. No, no, Dubidot, not at all. Yes, you have. I know what you all think of me. Don't imagine I'm sore about it. I forgive you. Well, damn me. I beg your pardon. That was old Walpole, I know. Don't grieve, Walpole. I'm perfectly happy. I'm not in pain. I don't want to live. I've escaped from myself. I'm in heaven, immortal in the heart of my beautiful Jennifer. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. I know that in an accidental sort of way, struggling through the unreal part of life, I haven't always been able to live up to my ideal. In my own real world, I have never done anything wrong, never denied my faith, never been untrue to myself. I've been threatened and blackmailed and insulted and starved. But I've played the game. I've fought the good fight. And now it's all over. There's an indescribable peace. I believe in Michelangelo, Velasquez, and Rembrandt, in the might of design, the mystery of color, the redemption of all things by beauty everlasting, in the message of art that has made these hands blessed. Amen. Amen. He closes his eyes and lies still. Lewis, are you— Walpole rises and comes quickly to see whether he is dead. Not yet, dear. Very nearly, but not yet. I should like to rest my head on your bosom, only it would tire you. No, 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 darling. How could you tire me? She lifts him so that he lies on her bosom. That's good. That's real. Don't spare me, dear. Indeed, indeed, you will not tire me. Lean on me with all your weight. Lewis, with a sudden half-return of his normal strength and comfort. Jinningwinny, I think I shall recover after all. Sir Patrick looks significantly at Ridgeon, mutely warning him that this is the end. Yes, yes, you shall. Because I suddenly want to sleep. Just an ordinary sleep. Yes, dear, sleep. He seems to go to sleep. Walpole makes another movement. Shh, shh, please don't disturb him. His lips move. What did you say, dear? I can't listen without moving him. His lips move again. Walpole bends down and listens. He wants to know, is the newspaper man here? 
Yes, Mr. Dubedat, here I am. Walpole raises his hand warningly to silence him. Sir Rafe sits down quietly on the sofa, and frankly buries his face in his handkerchief. Oh, that's right, dear. Don't spare me. Lean with all your weight on me. Now you are really resting. Sir Patrick quickly comes forward and feels Lewis's pulse, then takes him by the shoulders. Let me put him back on the pillow, ma'am. He will be better so. Oh, no, please. Please, doctor. He is not tiring me. And he will be so hurt when he wakes if he finds I have put him away. He will never wake again. He takes the body from her and replaces it in the chair. Ridgeon, unmoved, lets down the back and makes a beer of it. Mrs. Dubedat, who has unexpectedly sprung to her feet, and stands dry-eyed and stately. Was that death? Yes. Will you wait for me a moment? I will come back. She goes out. Ought we to follow her? Is she in her right senses? Yes. She's all right. Leave her alone. She'll come back. Let us get this thing out of the way before she comes. My dear Collie, the poor lad, he died splendidly. Aye, that is how the wicked die, for there are no bands in their death. But their strength is firm, they are not in trouble as other men. No matter, it is not for us to judge, he's in another world now. Borrowing his first five-pound note there, probably. I said the other day that the most tragic thing in the world is a sick doctor. I was wrong. The most tragic thing in the world is a man of genius who is not also a man of honor. Ridgeon and Walpole wheel the chair into the recess. I thought it shewed a very nice feeling, his being so particular about his wife going into proper mourning for him and making her promise never to marry again. Mrs. Dubidot is not in a position to carry the interview any further. Neither are we. Good afternoon to you. Mrs. Dubidat said she was coming back. After you have gone. Do you think she would give me a few words on how it feels to be a widow? Rather good title for an article, isn't it? Young man, if you wait until Mrs. Dubedat comes back, you will be able to write an article on how it feels to be turned out of the house. You'd think she'd rather not. Good day to you. Giving him a visiting card. Mind you get my name correctly. Good day. Good day. Thank you. Vaguely trying to read the card. Mr. No, not Mr. This is your hat, I think. Gloves? No, of course, no gloves. Good day to you. He edges him out at last, shuts the door on him, and returns to Sir Patrick as Ridgeon and Walpole come back from the recess, Walpole crossing the room to the hat-stand, and Ridgeon coming between Sir Rafe and Sir Patrick. Poor fellow, poor young fellow, how well he died. I feel a better man, really. When you're as old as I am, you'll know that it matters very little how a man dies. What matters is how he lives. Every fool that runs his nose against a bullet is a hero nowadays, because he dies for his country. Why don't he live for it to some purpose? No, please, Paddy, don't be hard on the poor lad. Not now, not now. After all, was he so bad? He had only two failings, money and women. Well, let us be honest. Tell the truth, Paddy. Don't be hypocritical, Riggan. Throw off the mask, Walpole. Are these two matters so well arranged at present that a disregard of the usual arrangements indicates real depravity? I don't mind his disregarding the usual arrangements. 
confound the usual arrangements. To a man of science they're beneath contempt both as to money and women. What I mind is his disregarding everything except his own pocket and his own fancy. He didn't disregard the usual arrangements when they paid him. Did he give us his pictures for nothing? Do you suppose he'd have hesitated to blackmail me if I'd compromised myself with his wife? Not he. Don't waste your time wrangling over him. A blackguard's a blackguard. An honest man's an honest man. And neither of them will ever be at a loss for a religion or a morality to prove their ways are the right ways. It's the same with nations, the same with professions. The same all the world over, and always will be. Ah, well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Still, de mortuis nil nisi bonum. He died extremely well, remarkably well. He has set us an example. Let us endeavor to follow it, rather than harp on the weaknesses that have perished with him. I think it is Shakespeare who says that the good that most men do lives after them. The evil lies interred with their bones. Yes, interred with their bones. Believe me, Patty, we are all mortal. It is the common lot, Riggan. Say what you will, Walpole. Nature's debt must be paid. If tis not to-day, twill be to-morrow. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, after life's fitful fever they sleep well, and like this insubstantial born from which no traveller returns, leave not a rack behind. Walpole is about to speak, but Beebe, suddenly and vehemently proceeding, extinguishes him. Out, out, brief candle, for nothing canst thou to damnation add, the readiness is all. Yes, Beebe, death makes people go on like that. I don't know why it should, but it does. By the way, what are we going to do? Ought we to clear out? Or would we better wait and see whether Mrs. Dubedat will come back? I think we'd better go. We can tell the charwoman what to do. They take their hats and go to the door. Mrs. Dubedat, coming from the inner door wonderfully and beautifully dressed, and radiant, carrying a great piece of purple silk, handsomely embroidered over her arm. I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting. Don't mention it, madam. By no means. Oh, it doesn't matter in the least. I felt that I must shake hands with his friends once before we part today. We have shared together a great privilege and a great happiness. I don't think we can ever think of ourselves ordinary people again. We have had a wonderful experience, and that gives us a common faith, a common ideal that nobody else can quite have. Life will always be beautiful to us. Death will always be beautiful to us. May we shake hands on that? Shaking hands. Remember, our letters had better be left to your solicitor. Let him open everything and settle everything. That's the law, you know. Oh, thank you. I didn't know. Sir Patrick goes. Goodbye. I blame myself. I should have insisted on operating. He goes. I will send the proper people. They will know what to do. You shall have no trouble. Goodbye, my dear lady. He goes. Goodbye. He offers his hand. Mrs. Dubedat, drawing back with gentle majesty. I said his friends, Sir Colenso. He bows and goes. She unfolds the great piece of silk, and goes into the recess to cover her dead. End of Act Four